From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. The pandemic raised awareness of vaccines, yet childhood vaccination rates overall in Colorado have taken a dip, to the point that health officials are alerting parents. Meanwhile, a disease like polio, which had been snuffed out in this country, rears its ugly head. Today, the author of Calling the Shots, Why Parents Reject Vaccines. Then, chronic pain can be difficult to treat, partly because it can be hard to diagnose. Doctors would tell me, look, we can't find anything. We've ran every test physically possible. MRIs, CT scans, blood work, always, constantly, I was being poked and prodded. Test results, I was healthy as a horse. Hear the new radio documentary from our series On Pain. Support for Colorado Public Radio comes in all shapes and sizes. You might give monthly as an Evergreen member or contribute during fund drives. Maybe you donated your car or gave a gift of stock. For all the ways you support CPR, thank you so much. Your generosity is deeply appreciated. Thank you for bringing trustworthy news and timeless music to listeners across Colorado. Explore all the ways to give at CPR.org. Click on Support CPR. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. We begin with childhood vaccinations, and not just for COVID, but the whole gamut. Overall vaccination rates for kids in Colorado dropped this year compared to last. Health officials are concerned enough that they sent reminders to parents. Jennifer Reich serves on the Colorado Vaccine Equity Task Force. She's author of Calling the Shots, Why Parents Reject Vaccines. And she is a sociology professor at CU Denver. Jennifer, welcome back to the program. Thanks so much for having me. It's good to be back. I guess, first off, why have kids' vaccination rates dropped? You know, with all vaccine, you know, questions of vaccine hesitancy for children and and under vaccination, we know that there's always multiple things happening. So we know that there's a portion of parents who are unconvinced vaccines are necessary and safe and important who are going to opt out voluntarily. But we also know that there's a large number of children in Colorado who are under vaccinated because they haven't had consistent access to a medical home. They haven't had the ability to see a pediatrician during COVID um, who live in a region where vaccine distribution is much more challenging. And so we know that we have both sets of kids in Colorado, some who don't have access and some who have plenty of access, but don't want them. Um, And the challenge of course, is that they all remain unimmunized and they share a lot of the same social spaces um, and pool risk together. Now, some of those trends are enduring, uh, but it sounds like the pandemic in particular may have shrunk access. Do I have that right? Yeah, you know, we know nationally that childhood vaccinations are down everywhere. um, And a huge portion of that is because families struggle to access health care during COVID. I think adults also struggle to access primary care and preventative Mm -hmm. care during COVID. Um, We know that there's some number of retirements and shrinkage of the medical fields. And I think Anyone who's tried to get a primary care appointment recently has experienced some very long delays for well care, and that's true in pediatrics also. Um, And then we know that there's been some people who have lost access to health insurance and lost um, access to their usual course of care. On top of that, though, there's a a secondary problem, which is that the COVID vaccine rollout um, for a small number of Americans 
uh, underscored their existing distrust of pharmaceutical companies and government policies and public health agencies. And that may have amplified or solidified some of the hesitancy we saw before COVID. Which I have to say, to me, is counterintuitive. That is to say, we saw very um, immediate and real evidence that people were less likely to be hospitalized if they were vaccinated for COVID-19. But it seems to have had the opposite effect. How do you explain that? You know, I started studying vaccine decision-making long before COVID. And what I heard over and over again from parents who were hesitant or resistant to vaccinating their children were that they saw themselves as experts on their own children and they trust their judgment about their own children's health more than they trusted governments, more than they trusted their pediatrician, more than they trusted public health agencies and messaging. And when we think about what that means, we've heard a lot of actually insistence on that same logic throughout COVID. You know, we, the, um, the outsized focus on pre-existing conditions early probably led a lot of people who don't have a lot of underlying health conditions to believe that they're healthy and therefore COVID's unlikely to negatively affect them seriously. Mm. We saw this with um, low rates of infection amongst children where the claims that children could benefit from COVID vaccination have been you know, um, scrutinized and questioned. And, you know, risk, it's easy to forget that everyone has their own perception of risk in their daily lives and their own threshold of risk. And Ryan, we talked about this, I think last time I was on, you know, you know, you had a high willingness to travel far for a vaccine because you felt you were at risk. And other people took the other tact, which is to say, I think I'll be fine if I'm infected and vaccines aren't going to be part of my long term strategy. And mathematically, they're not wrong. It's just how much do you want to gamble on the unknown? And infectious disease is always about the unknown. Why don't we put this uh, into some context here? How significant is the drop in overall vaccination rates for kids? I mean, is it alarming to you? Yeah, we're still getting, you know, um, we're still looking for data on the fall 2022 cycle. But what we know so far is that there's a small uptick in the number of parents who have filed an exemption. So in Colorado, just as a reminder, we require all children who enter um, childcare settings and schools to show evidence of vaccination against the recommended vaccines in childhood. And we also allow parents to opt out for um, medical reasons and also for non-medical reasons. Parents who opt out of medical uh, for non-medical reasons now under new state law have to either meet with a healthcare provider or pediatrician to talk about their choice, or they have to complete an educational module with the state but then they can sign a declaration that they don't want to vaccinate their kids. And that allows their children to still attend schools and childcare settings. And so we saw an uptick on the exemption process, a small one. You know, we're still talking about, you know, two to 3% of children in Colorado. But what we also saw is a larger number of children who are what's called non-compliant, which means their parents have neither submitted vaccine records nor submitted an exemption. And that number is higher than usual, somewhere, depending on the vaccine, somewhere between five and 8%. Um, And those numbers, you know, it's great. We can say 90% of children in Colorado are fully immunized. That should make us feel pretty good. Um, But when we break that down, we have some other questions we can ask. So when we think about, you know, we have roughly 860,000 children between kindergarten and high school. Um, And when we say a couple percentage, what we're looking at is that, for example, if we were to have a measles outbreak in Colorado, we could expect that 45,000 Colorado students would be excluded from school for at least 21 day quarantine because they would be vulnerable. And 45,000 children out of school would be a catastrophe, I think, at the state level. You're listening to Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner, and we are talking about a dip in overall vaccination rates for kids in this state with the author of Calling the Shots, Why Parents Reject Vaccines, 
sociology professor at CU Denver, Jennifer Reich. She also serves on the state's vaccine equity task force. You talked about parents trusting their own sense of their children's health more than pediatricians. Now, I understand that someone might be hesitant to trust government. I mean, there there is a history, for instance, when it comes to government experiments on people of color, for instance. But I've often heard that the, the more kind of local you get, that is, the closer you get to your physician, the more trust there is. So that was surprising when you said that. You know, what we know from other studies is that healthcare providers and pediatricians are amongst the most trusted sources of vaccine information. And that has remained true. Um, and so that's, it's not that that's untrue. But when people are looking for any kind of health decision, and this is true of parents, but it's true, I think, of all of us, we tend to ask our family, our friends, we try to look for people whose lifestyle and values align with ours, and we see what they're doing, and we ask for advice to try to make the best decision for ourselves. And so what parents often said to me is that it's not that they don't trust their pediatrician, but they saw their pediatrician as just one voice amongst many. Hmm. And, you know, over time, if we look historically, the amount of time pediatricians are able to spend with each family has gotten shorter and shorter. Often uh, parents don't see the same provider at each visit because they're in a larger group and there's a higher volume and a higher turnover and a higher rate at which um, providers are expected to see patients under you know, increasingly tight reimbursements from insurance companies. So we could think about all these small ways when we think about that 15 minute encounter and whether that's really enough time to ask what you the questions you have and to really feel like this person, this healthcare provider understands your lifestyle or understands your experience or understands what's important to you in terms of your family's values and goals. And so that's really made it, I think, a little bit more challenging than we saw 30 years ago. Yeah, that's fascinating. And of course, then we also know about the shortage of access to healthcare workers, which is only exacerbating the the picture you paint there. Uh, I'm grateful that you paint a nuanced picture as well because you use the term under-vaccinated, right? So this this isn't uh, always a question of whether to vaccinate my child at all for anything and whether to vaccinate them for everything. Uh, some of this is delaying vaccination. Some of it is choosing which vaccines. What have you learned about how parents deem one vaccine worthy and another one unworthy? Yeah, that's such a great question. You know, I think at um, a core level, everyone is engaging in their own risk-benefit calculations. And that's true of whether people were deciding to get a COVID vaccine, a flu vaccine, or, or vaccines for their children. And so what I heard often from parents was that they really looked at each vaccine and they tried to evaluate the seriousness of the illness, the likelihood that their child would encounter it against their distrust of the safety of the vaccine. And they tended to, you know, most parents um, who reject vaccines overestimate the risk of an adverse reaction and underestimate the benefit. But parents are willing to say things to me like, I believe that um, the polio vaccine is really important, but we haven't seen polio in North America um, until, you know, since 1979, although we know in the last year we now see polio again. Um, and But that the chickenpox vaccine doesn't feel important because I remember having chickenpox as a child. And the willingness to kind of parse this out And I think that's not dissimilar to how we see adults making decisions about flu vaccines or about COVID vaccines, right? Everyone's engaging in this kind of risk-benefit model. I think what's complicated, just to sort of put a finer point on this, though, and, you know, I mentioned we've seen polio back uh, in New York and in sewage systems um, in other cities around the world. Um, And we have one case of paralytic polio in uh, New York. 
from a person who was um, unvaccinated by choice and then encountered uh, the virus probably from a live vaccine that was given elsewhere because we don't use this in the U.S. Um, but polio is a perfect example of a disease that really only was paralytic for one to two percent of the people who were infected. And yet the severity of the outcome is, is notable, right? And that's enough to make parents nervous about it historically. And we could think of the same math when we think about COVID. If your hospitalization rate is only one to two percent, are the vaccines important? But of course, that's a very serious outcome. Um, for a huge number of people who, from a very infectious disease. And so yeah. when we can think about how do we each make this decision, we have always imperfect information of how we as an individual respond. I want to say that uh, while overall childhood vaccination rates have dropped in Colorado, rates specifically for preschoolers and those in childcare have risen slightly. Uh, but back to polio before we go. What are your concerns there? Is that a blip or is that a trend? You know, it's funny, when I started writing about vaccines um, in around 2007 and I interviewed some vaccine researchers, people told me, oh, we're going to have, in, we have inactive polio in this country. We just won't see it until we see a drop in vaccines. And I thought that that was a little bit um, uh, cynical. But now I'm convinced that they were right. And that we, you know, we, that as long as we can maintain 90 to 95 percent vaccination rates in a community, we can usually keep diseases at bay because we create sort of a firewall around our communities. Mm -hmm. And when those rates start to drop, we create vulnerabilities where then infections can spread. And even though we're talking about, you know, 90% of Colorado children are fully immunized, which is really important. I think there's a couple of things we can also point to though. That vaccine um, under vaccination and um, unvaccination by choice tend to be pocketed. And so mm -hmm. it's not that 90% is equally distributed across the state, but rather certain communities and certain schools may have vaccine rates in the 60s, in the 50s. And that's a very different kind of vulnerability than um, vaccine rates uh, at schools that have something like 95% coverage. And right. And so this, this is a local and community question. And Jennifer, I'm so sorry to have to wrap up there, but thank you so much for your perspective as always. Oh, my pleasure. And the last thing I'll add is parents can look up their own school's vaccine rates if they're interested on the state, on the CDPHE website, if that's of interest. And, thanks uh, so much for having me. Yeah, absolutely. And thanks for that tip about acquainting yourself with the numbers in your own backyard. CU Denver sociologist Jennifer Reich, author of Calling the Shots. And we'll be right back with Coloradans who've been on years-long journeys to find relief from chronic pain. This is CPR News. Growing up, May Ortega thought that she had a pretty good idea of who she was. But when she became a journalist, she realized that to report on other people, she had to figure out her own story. In first grade, we noticed that everything was in English. So sometimes like they would slap the back of your hand with rulers if you were speaking Spanish when they would tell you not to. You can find the newest episode of Quien Are We? everywhere you listen to podcasts. You're with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. It's a way of life no one would choose to experience chronic pain. Finding relief can feel like a full-time job, but it is possible. And when it's not, it can be helpful simply to know you're not alone. That's what you have heard in our recent series on pain, which we've turned into a radio documentary available through CPR's podcast, Colorado In-Depth. And you will hear the documentary right here, right now. Kaj Barber grew up in Denver and remembers being in pain even as a kid. Each day before school, it was like her bones hurt. When I would feel it, it was like stepping 
out of bed every day or like I was hit by a big Mack truck. Like I just felt like I was in pain every single day I woke up. Kaj was almost a teenager at this time and people told her it's just growing pains. And I guess where it was most prominent is after I had my first child. And I had my first kid when I was 13. So I just figured maybe it was the after of having a kid because I was so young. But Kasha's sensations of pain were not normal, even after childbirth. I called them ghost pains. So I would explain to the doctor, like, imagine you have a rusty saw that's dull sawing your bones. Kaja's chronic pain followed right along with her into adulthood, lasting for decades, making her one of the million or so Coloradans who've dealt with chronic pain. Over the past six months, CPR News has talked with Coloradans of many different backgrounds, veterans, athletes, older folks, people who've dealt with chronic pain since they were very young, like Kaj. It doesn't discriminate. It affects all kinds of people. They and their loved ones and their doctors are all searching for answers. Increasingly, answers that do not involve opioids. Kaj didn't search for treatment right away after she started to notice her intense pain. Then, when she finally did... Doctors would tell me, look, we can't find anything. We've ran every test physically possible. I went through MRIs. CT scans, blood work, always, constantly, I was being poked and prodded. Test results, I was healthy as a horse. But I'm like, I can't get out of bed in the morning. There were times where I felt like parts of my skin was on fire. It was draining. The doctor's solution was to give medications, whether she wanted them or not. I had a doctor ask me as soon as he walked through the door, do you just want drugs? There was no, what's your background story? Nothing. The first thing he said to me is, do you just want drugs? I refused all drugs because they were very quick to give drugs in the beginning Mm. and not try to address the problem. What Kaj wanted were answers about what caused this intense pain so they could find a way to really treat it. first time I heard fibromyalgia, I may have been 14, and I was still being seen at Denver Health. I think it was probably Denver General at the time. Uh (laughs) And it was kind of thrown out there, like, well, we think that it could be this. Never said anything about it again. It gave me something to try and understand because I'm a puzzle solver, so... I took it upon myself to learn all that I could about the human body so I can understand how my body was working. There was no internet at the time, so I was not Googling anything. (laughs) There were doctors who actually were offended that I knew medical terms or I spoke to them properly. And they were like, you don't know what you're talking about. Just, you know, talk normal. This five-syllable word she'd heard, fibromyalgia, stuck in her mind, and it became the focus of her research. In the beginning stages of them learning about fibromyalgia, there was a checklist. And if you had, I think, 11 
tender points on your body, you had fibromyalgia. This has since changed in the medical literature, but at the time, Kosh tried it immediately. I touched my ankles, and it was like instantly so painful, and I thought, let me try more. So I went to the ones um, on the inside and outside of my knees, very tender. Um, The ones on my back were tender, and then I don't think that I did the shoulders or the neck, just because by then I was like flabbergasted. But Kosh says her doctors didn't really believe in the diagnosis. So while she took in as much information as she could, her physicians came up with other explanations that were better-known causes of chronic pain. I was diagnosed with lupus and MS. Neither of them turned out to be true. And for the first three years, I want to say, I was kind of living my life as if I had MS or lupus. And I was still in school raising three children. To get a diagnosis of lupus and MS in that point in life is almost devastating. So again, there's more stress added onto that. The tension in my body was so strong that my trapezius muscles set almost under my ears. I looked like a bodybuilder. I was made to see a psychiatrist, although I had no underlying issues with mental illness. And it got to the point where I started to feel like I was crazy. I'm like, could I possibly be mentally ill? And there was no clear diagnosis of what my mental illness was. Only contributing to her stress, which made the pain worse. This is Colorado In-Depth, a podcast of original reporting from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. We have hunted for solutions, breakthroughs, so pain sufferers feel less alone and like there are options. Later, we'll hear where Kaja's journey has taken her and if she's found relief. We'll hear from other people navigating chronic pain, too, and a doctor who treats patients. The stakes for the millions of people experiencing chronic pain are enormous. It can lead to addiction, as we know from the opioid crisis. In our reporting, we've heard several times that chronic pain has also led to suicidal thoughts. Chronic pain conditions are often hard to diagnose and to treat effectively. And that's particularly true for people of color, like Kaj. They also more commonly get misdiagnosed. So do women. And while some folks need opioids, they're not for everyone. I told my doctors, I don't want drugs because I come from a family of addicts. My biggest fear is that I will become addicted. So can we please figure out something else? We met an Army veteran, Captain Jacob Humble, near Colorado Springs, who also wanted another option besides opioids. Jacob was injured during an Army training exercise in 2003. He was stateside at the time at Fort Benning in Georgia. The day I was injured, it was uh, just a training day. We were doing this training exercise. We had some foreign nationals with us. And there's this pyramid that you have to climb. It's kind of an inverted pyramid. And you have to help each other out. And so I decided to get down on all fours and help this guy from Georgia, the country Georgia, up to the next pyramid. And instead of stepping on in the middle of my shoulders or on my hips, 
he stepped right in the middle of my back. And I think it was because of a language barrier that that happened, but then I felt something pop, heard something pop. And that was in 2003. And ever since then, all the way until 2007, it just continued to get worse. He didn't know right away that it was serious. He'd heard his body make weird pops before. It was a few weeks later. Uh, we were out in the field and it just wasn't getting any better. And we were doing a ruck march of, I think, 21 miles. And uh, every time I would ruck up, put weight on it uh, with a heavy, heavy rucksack, it would, it would let me know that there was something wrong. As the march progressed, my left leg just became more and more numb and to the point where every time I take a, a step, it was just a pretty sharp shooting pain. So I went to the hospital. I went to the sick call. They told me it was just a minor sprain, not to worry about it. It would get better on its own. It didn't. In the military, you're really trained to just suck it up and take some aspirin or some ibuprofen and, and move on and just kind of forget about it or act like it's not there because that's just the environment, especially in the early 2000s. But it just, it just got to the point where I, had, I couldn't ignore it anymore. I had to take something. The point where he turned to prescription painkillers came in August 2005. During a deployment, I was outside the United States on a deployment in another country. And we're repelling from a helicopter. And whenever I came down, that's whenever the pain became really bad. The Army gave him Percocet, an opioid. I think when you first start taking opioids, there's um, there's the effect where it makes you more happy-go-lucky. It dulls things out, definitely. But there is this, I remember, I think it was the Percocet that kind of did give me a euphoria. And it, it was, it, it changed my personality enough that my company commander noticed it and some other people, and I didn't really like that. And so Jacob liked opioids even less over time. I was lethargic. I was not nearly motivated as I wanted to be. My attitude was like I just didn't really care about too much. My relationship with my family suffered. And you just really don't. I I can't say for everybody, but for myself, I just... It just alters you to the point where you just don't really care. You're in a different world. Jacob's wife says it felt like opioids took a part of him away from her and the family for more than a decade. And for Jacob, he got the sense everyone looked at him like an addict. He says he was treated like some kind of criminal. He tried to find other ways to treat his pain. Every time Jacob and his wife saw a new doctor, they asked for a new idea, an alternative. Two years ago, they met a physician at the VA. Joseph Frank is his name. I don't know if there's a word positive enough to express what Dr. Frank has done for my family and I. To the point where when we do have a child, we definitely want to name our child after Dr. Frank in some form or fashion. So what did he do that has been so life-changing? Instead of saying, well, okay, your doctor before had you on this and this and this, so let's just put you back on that. He said, you know, there's some other drugs. There's some other things that might help. Are you willing to try them? And he was the only 
one that had done that. Dr. Frank was the first one who really put me first instead of his practice or his pocketbook. The other therapy they decided on was buprenorphine. It's commonly used to treat opioid addiction, but it's also a pain medication itself, though it's not often used that way. Dr. Frank says what matters is whether it can make a person's life better. And for Jacob, it took away thoughts of suicide. I feel much more like myself again. I'm much more like the person my wife fell in love with two decades ago. And... How it's different is I don't feel like I'm under that cloud of the medicine that it puts you under. I don't feel as groggy or as clouded or like I'm underwater. And I want to live again. Switching off opioids to buprenorphine has made him more physically active. His wife estimates he's lost 50 pounds. Dr. Frank, who prescribes the buprenorphine to Jacob, cautions it's not a miracle drug. It goes hand-in-hand with therapy and perhaps other medications. There can be side effects, and it's not going to work for everyone. Yet part of Jacob's joy now is not only having found a solution for himself, but getting to tell other people about it. When we come back, how our brains can help train the pain away and find out how Kaj Barber has gotten her pain under control. It ended up being no farther away than her kitchen. This is Colorado In-Depth from CPR News. In Colorado's subalpine areas, you might spot a greenish-gray toad hanging out in shallow waters, sporting a white stripe on its back. Each boreal toad is further distinguished by its own belly pattern, as unique as a fingerprint. You won't hear the boreal toad croak, as it doesn't have the vocal organ to make that sound, but you might hear this delicate chirp. Instead of drinking, the toad absorbs water through a patch on its skin, and that can be infected by a fungus that's depleting amphibian populations worldwide. The boreal toad was once common in the southern Rocky Mountains, but has declined drastically over the past few decades. A hundred toads are now in the Denver Zoo's care in a conservation effort to restore the animal in the southern Rockies. With thanks to biologist Danita Weeks, this is a Colorado Postcard from Colorado Public Radio with the support of Dazzle Jazz in Denver. You're with Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. On today's show, you are hearing about chronic pain and Coloradans who live with it daily and who found solutions. Let's get back to our On Pain special from Colorado Matters and the podcast Colorado In-Depth. You hear a lot about the mind-body connection, but of course our brains are in our bodies. So when it comes to pain, where does one end and the next begin? It's something Naomi Binkley McDonald thinks a lot about when everyday life feels physically daunting, like a trip to the mall with family. In 2012, um, I was doing something for my business. I've got a video production company, and we got to the bottom of a flight of stairs, and I just started crying. She couldn't fathom getting up them. A stunning turn for someone who had played competitive softball growing up. Things have only gotten worse in the years since that day at the mall. Stairs now are practically impossible for me. 
the pain is really exclusive to my upper arms and my upper legs. You know, it used to be really triggered by movement. Now it's just all the time. And, and it feels ugh, just like someone is taking two forks and shredding my muscles. Some days the pain is so bad she can't get out of bed. And she doesn't really know what's wrong, just that it hurts. And it's not for a lack of trying you know, holistic treatments, mind-body treatments, equine therapy, cupping, you know, all of it, talking to the pain and saying, thank you for the pain signal, but it's not necessary. Last year, I did a program in Utah where it was three weeks of trying to treat pain. And it was a straight out of the pocket investment. And it took all of our savings. And, you know, it was kind of for me a last hope kind of thing. And, you know, when you make that investment of time and money and burden on your family of keeping things going when you're gone and then you come back and nothing has changed, it's devastating. Not having a diagnosis leaves her feeling lonely. You feel so alone because in so many medical conditions with diagnoses, you have a community to turn to. So if you have a blood cancer, for instance, or multiple sclerosis or something, there's help out there just by knowing what it is that you have. There's no group that I can really turn to for support. So you do feel alone in that, but you also feel alone in the searching itself because I do have people who have questioned you know, what does it matter? I, I even had a physician once say, if it's not going to kill you, what does it matter? She has wondered, as you might be right now, whether the pain is all in her head. Maybe, partially, but that's not something to dismiss. It's where some of the answers are. Our fear system is always on the ready. And we're designed to be that so we're not eaten by the saber-toothed tiger. Dr. Karen Knight works in pain management in Golden, just west of Denver. She and other doctors tell us that evolutionarily, humans are biased towards threats. That's how we stay safe. That's how our brain is nimble, because we scan the entire horizon to look for danger. And because we have these big brains, we are able to move through multitudes of environments. That is our power. And sometimes we get too good at orienting towards threats. I mean, who wants to be in a tiger's jaw? The idea is that we can get fixated on pain when we're really doing okay. Pain is an emergency system for the body. You put your finger into a flame, you go, ouch, it hurts, and you pull back. You're protecting your body. What happens with chronic pain is that that emergency um, notification system gets broken. So if you think of it as being your house alarm, instead of the house alarm going off when an intruder comes in, right, that's what we want, your house alarm in chronic pain is going off when a leaf falls outside your door. Knight says people with chronic pain might feel less of it if doctors can help them rewire their brains. Human brains can do this. They can create new wiring, and they do it all the time. It's called neuroplasticity. If you remember one term from this story, make it this. Neuroplasticity is actual changes in the brain, so changes in those pathways and connectivity. The brain is very, very plastic. 
One way of thinking about plasticity is if you decided right today that you were going to learn how to play a musical instrument, your brain would start laying down new pathways between your eyes, between your ears, between your fine motor skills. You would literally start dreaming about music. Unfortunately, chronic pain is a type of dark neuroplasticity or negative neuroplasticity. It's making those connections to amplify something distressful. In her chronic pain practice, Dr. Knight has an arsenal of ways to try to rewire the brain. The term she actually likes to use is flowering. Rewiring, to me, sounds like you're ripping out something old and putting down something new. I don't think of it like that. I think of it as sending out new sprouts, new roots, new arms to the tree. So a flowering. She says it often works best in combination with some sort of movement therapy. Taken together, they can be powerful. She also stresses the importance of social connection, the exact thing Naomi said was missing in her life and was hampering her quest for a solution to her chronic pain. Dr. Knight. The way that we actually calm our fear system is actually through community and connection. I have access to therapists and psychologists who work with chronic pain patients and help them go to that next level because many of these people have experienced traumas in their life. It's not the whole story. We have a brain, we have a body, things happen to it. But sometimes you also have this trauma that links with it and makes it harder to get better. Dr. Knight also runs a support group, which she calls a resiliency group. We're supposed to be in a clan. And many of us are separated from a clan. By being able to say yes to another person, I have a really hard time getting up in the morning and getting going because I hurt so much. And having another person reflect back, I have the same experience. That in and of itself is a healing activity. Naomi figured this out, too. She created community through a blog called Pain and Purpose. I had to put the raw me out there. And in doing so, I realized that so many people are struggling in silence out there. Hmm. People who would come to me and say, you know, I deal with this mental health condition or I'm dealing with chronic pain or an illness that nobody knows about. It gives her the boost she needs to get through nights where the pain is so bad, she breaks into a cold sweat. I'm hopeful that there will be a day that I'm pain-free, that maybe one day I can uh, throw out the first pitch at a Rockies game or something incredible like that. But I've also realized that there are gifts in this that I wouldn't have had otherwise. I think it's opened new chambers in my heart to be able to relate to other people who are going through challenging experiences and often alone. I mean, I think about people out there who can't navigate the medical system. Mm. It's a bear. Dr. Knight has ideas about other ways the brain can be rewired or regrown, like meditation. And she wishes there would be more exploration of psychedelics and chronic pain. Many of the psychedelics actually change brain neuroplasticity. And we've seen in well-run studies really intriguing responses for treatment-resistant depression, PTSD, OCD. It seems to change the way the brain is wired. 
if it's affecting those disorders, it will make a difference for chronic pain. The missed opportunity she sees in psychedelics is just one way Dr. Knight gets frustrated with chronic pain treatment today. Practically nothing that I'm talking about is covered by insurance. There's a lot of barriers. Basically, a lot of our pain providers come out of anesthesia, and they start their career putting people to sleep. And then they learn how to do as many procedures as possible. So if those procedures don't get patients better, then they say, oh, you just need to live with this. This is not the comprehensive pain treatment that patients need. Despite skepticism from the system, there is evidence that the psychological approach she takes works. Researchers at the University of Colorado Boulder put people with chronic back pain through four weeks of counseling and other treatment called pain reprocessing therapy. They learned how to think about their pain differently and to address emotions that exacerbate it. The results? Two-thirds of the patients were pain-free or nearly pain-free after treatment. They also showed changes in how their brains process pain. It's one of the exciting new ways Dr. Knight says scientists have to reach out and touch the brain that they definitely did not have 20 years ago. And that can help reduce dependence on opioids. Which brings us back to Kaj Barber, who has worked to avoid opioids and find another way to manage her chronic pain. Hear the rest of Kaj's story when On Pain continues from CPR News. Music has this special ability to elevate the stories we tell, make you feel seen, help you to understand someone else's experience. That's part of the joy of listening to music and exactly what we're exploring in the CPR podcast, Music Blocks. Five-minute musical explorations to help inspire great conversations about music in classrooms and during family time. Season two of the award-winning podcast, Music Blocks, is all about the stories of our lives. Find it wherever you listen. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. For months now, you've heard Coloradans on this show who contend with chronic pain. We've also highlighted scientists who search for new treatments. Let's return to the story of Kaj Barber, who lives in Denver. She has fibromyalgia, a diagnosis that was often dismissed, even by those closest to her. When I would tell family members at the time, they were like, yeah. That's not real. You're just making that up. And it wasn't until they saw commercials to validate what I had been saying for almost 15, 20 years. You had to see a commercial in order to know that I was actually telling the truth. One doctor has told us that opioids, the way Kaj was prescribed them, aren't even a treatment for fibromyalgia anymore. They can actually make pain worse over the long term. But Kaj had already figured out that, for herself, the answer isn't in her medicine cabinet. It's in her backyard. We got goats maybe five months ago. So the male goat got these two pregnant. And then we ended up with kids. And I, I was so scared of animals, all animals. And now we have these little cuties. Oh, there we go. Your little 
long. It's too much. You're so adorable. Your tongues. Oh my goodness. When I go to Kaja's home in Denver, I would never know she suffers from chronic pain. She moves easily around the rooms into the yard. I'm here because I want to see the home remedies she's come up with, which now effectively manage her pain. The goats are part of it. She uses their milk in soaps. She also makes pain cream. In a corner of her kitchen, there's a cabinet packed with jars that have handwritten labels. St. John's wort, blessed thistle, rose. Um, it's my little mini apothecary. On these, I have sarsaparilla, um, have some lavender, some arnica, um, what else went to this? Some nettle, and I want to say my favorite is the comfrey and the calendula. So those are a couple of things that go into my pain cream. That looks like tea. It does. It's pretty much tea, just made with oil. And I'm gonna pour in a little bit of this rose oil, and I made this also. She swears by the herbs, as generations have. But think about their application, too. Certain kinds of touch can help with our pain responses, according to a leading rheumatologist at the University of Colorado, Dr. Kevin Dean. He told me massage, touch, and movement can all ease fibromyalgia. So can anything that really helps a patient get rest. Kaj uses chamomile and eucalyptus to help her get more restful sleep. As she stirs, she explains how she concocted these recipes through trial and error. Concoctions she now sells. Can you smell the peppermint? So maybe three or four years ago, I was reading a uh, herbal book, and I'm like, I have all this in my medicine cabinet. Let's see what I can put together. So I um, started with like maybe four or five different herbs because I would make my own teas. And I was like, can I put this on my skin? So it was just standing here, like, let's put this stuff together and started making my own oils. Can I smell the rose oil? Yes, it smells so good. Oh, yeah. so good. One ingredient she's added to some of her recipes is CBD, the part of cannabis that isn't psychoactive, meaning it won't get you high. It gives the mixture a green color. For other people who have fibromyalgia, exercise may be the ticket. Dr. Dean says exercise can help reset brain pathways around pain, kind of like an ongoing runner's high. Kaj has done water aerobics to help ease joint pain. Finding relief is obviously the biggest motivator for her. So is taking control of her own health. Oh, it was definitely taking control because, like I said, I didn't want to do regular medicine because I'm allergic to everything. And it was just learning my body. So when they were like, well, here, there's this pain medicine, I looked up the equivalent of an herbal uh, solution. And it was taking my power back because I felt like I had no power because they were controlling everything. And the medications, like I said, that they were giving me were pretty much leaving me like a a zombie. I needed to figure out something else. So 
yeah, I was definitely taking that control back with this. And through this, I learned a lot about the earth and what it can provide for us. I learned that I needed to change the way that I ate because a lot of the food that we eat, it's making things like fibromyalgia happen or worsen. She's cut out sugar, red meat. She has a pallet of soda sitting here that she wouldn't touch nowadays. By making all these changes, she has adapted her way out of agony. I can't even recall the last time I had an episode. Um, And I think when I did, it was my elbow, I want to say. And I was like, oh, fibromyalgia's here. And it's just like a, you know, friend or cousin that you don't really want to see. (laughs) They just show up at your house and then leave. I just rubbed some cream on it and then it forgot that I even had it. So I I don't suffer like I used to because it was suffering. It was a lot of years of suffering mentally and physically. I don't suffer. While we know now how much community can help improve people's experiences with pain, this is also an individual journey, as we heard to a person during this reporting, from Jacob, from Kaj, and neither let their worst days define them. Don't give up, because I know personally that that impetus was always in my head, that if I had to deal with this amount of pain for the next 20 or 30 or 40 years, that it might not really be worth it. And so I would say don't give up. If it's not buprenorphine, there's something else out there. I've heard of other things that people have done to be able to deal with chronic pain. So be your own best advocate to search out, enable yourself to find these therapies, to find these methods of controlling the pain. What is your advice to other people who are on a journey of getting answers to their own pain? I would say, know your body. And what does that mean, know your body? Listen to it, because again, like for me, it was, I know there's pain. You can tell me that you don't see pain in any of these tests that you're taking, but when I wake up, there's pain. I can feel it. It's real. So know that whatever you're going through is real and advocate for that, because no one else can tell you what is going on inside of you. And that's for any situation because we live in these bodies every day. This episode of Colorado In Depth was co-reported with Andrea Dukakis. It's produced and edited by Rachel Estabrook, scoring and sound design by Pedro Lombrano. Thanks also to Carl Bielek and Pete Kramer. Our full reporting series is available at CPR.org onpain. It includes an interview with a man who uses opioids to manage his chronic pain, showing that for some people, opioids managed well can be part of the solution. He says the crackdown on opioids has actually made things harder for him. Again, that's at CPR.org slash on pain. And never miss our investigative and long-form reporting by following Colorado In-Depth in your favorite podcast app. I'm Ryan Warner. Thanks for spending time with us. This is CPR News and KRCC.